This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Engineering Project Management Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping project managers sharpen their PM skills. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Engineering Project Management Podcast, I will be speaking with Dan Oblinger. Dan is a commanding hostage negotiator, esteemed author, international keynote speaker, and skilled consultant specializing in business negotiation in the AEC industry. He has really done an amazing job in creating a real niche for himself in our industry. And there's a reason he's been able to do that. He is really sharp in terms of negotiating and handling difficult conversations, which project managers have to have in our industry every single day. And in this episode, he's going to give you some tips on how you can better navigate those interesting and awkward and sometimes very stressful conversations. With that, let's jump into today's episode. All right, now I'd like to welcome our guest onto the Engineering Project Management Podcast. Today, my guest is Dan Oblinger. Dan is a consulting negotiator for AEC firms. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Anthony, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, happy to have you. Dan was on one of our other channels some time ago. We got to meet, and I know he's done a ton of work now in the AEC industry, which is great because that's where we're both sitting here today. And We're going to focus a lot on project management today and how negotiation can play a huge role in project management, which it absolutely does. But before we get there, Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and the path that kind of led you to becoming a hostage negotiator commander. I was born on the windswept prairies of Kansas, and I lived in a home largely uh, furnished with office furnishings, discarded office furnishings. Mom and a dad, they were great. Had some siblings. My dad was a general contractor, which becomes relevant later in the story. I went a different path. I became a law enforcement officer way back when. I'm in my 21st year of that. Married six kids. But along the way, professionally, which is kind of the relevance for this podcast, right? I became a hostage negotiator for my police department. Started doing that 13 years ago. I'm a commander for that unit. A ton of experience, really. Worked with some of the most amazing people in the world, I think. About 10 years ago, my dad came to me and he said, hey, you know what you do, people would like pay you for that knowledge and the, the skill, like to transfer that skill to people. To prove him wrong, I set out to do that, to prove him that that's not true. Fortunately or unfortunately, it is true. And about five years ago, I made this intentional decision to just niche down right into AEC, largely because of my work with the consulting engineering firms. And then the architects were like, hey, us too. And I'm like, okay, cool. I like you. You're good. And I was already doing some work with contractors. But I've found that these three very distinct groups of people that all work together, like all the time, they tend to have some really cool qualities as clients and just as professionals that really match with my skill set. And so it's been a, a pretty harmonious marriage. We do a lot of work by building custom programs for our clients around project management 
And I think the skills of negotiating and having these difficult conversations with clients and other consultants or contractors is really, really critical to becoming a successful project manager, which is why I wanted to have Dan on our engineering project management podcast specifically for that reason. So Dan, talk a little bit about the similarities and differences between negotiating with a hostage taker and negotiating with a client, because that's something that our listeners have to deal with clients every day. It's totally different until you begin to become a practitioner and you really look at like how do we accomplish success in each realm? So we look at hostage negotiation, we look at project delivery on a complex architectural engineering construction project. We're all three, right? The stakes are very different. The context is very different. The playmates, the playgrounds, and the playthings are all very different. But the human dynamics, the emotional elements are all the same, exactly the same. And in fact, the intensity is often, in my experience, not that different. And so that was kind of the surprising thing for me, transitioning from somebody who just did crisis negotiations, hostage work into serving companies. And then the first couple of iterations, not really knowing what they need, right? Like doing that client discovery myself, finding out, hey, what are the problems? What are the pain? How can I help? And then discovering that the human dynamics of the most challenging conversations they were having mimicked the most challenging dynamics of the conversations we were having. It was just all the accoutrements were different. Then to learn, like, we already have these uh, very robust systems and processes that help us manage those dynamics over here, like in the police world. And so let's try providing that to project managers for consulting engineering firms or, you know, the construction superintendents, the general superintendents for the construction firms, or for for the architectural project managers as well. It was uh, amazing and exciting to see the success as we just translated it over for a couple new industries and people were off to the races. If you were to look at this in a vacuum, you would say that negotiating for someone's life is like way more intense than negotiating a contract on a project, which by the way, could be obviously like a billion dollar project, but nonetheless, you would still think it's something that's not as intense. But I think Dan's point is important to think about is that the human dynamics are very much the same. And if you know that, then obviously, which is what Dan helps people do, you can apply some of those same tactics and strategies that he uses in those life or death situations that could still work the same in a contract scope creep, scope change type of situation, which can dictate the success of your project. And and when you're talking about $100 million projects, you're not talking about dollars and cents here. You're talking about a lot, a lot of money. So really important. Well, then there's a couple of weird things that happen, Anthony. That is exactly what I thought in the beginning. And it's what all of my clients think when we begin to work together. Like, well, obviously what you did over here, that's life or death. Like that's the most intense. Like that's the most important thing. We are less important. And then I point out something that I've learned from them. And that is, now hang on. Let's say you're working a a $600 million project. Okay. And you think about what the fee would be for your firm on that. And then we think about this. None of my clients, not even the people that don't think they need me, would ever sign up for a project, would take, would pursue work where they're in the red to start, right? When we begin with scope and fee, we're like, hey, this is good. We like our fee. Like almost always. Where does it go in the red? At the end. And that is when scope, supplementals, like when these get out of whack, we don't manage that properly. That's how we have unprofitable projects. And so this is where it gets weird. This is like, yeah, if somebody dies, that's terrible. We know it. You can't measure that amount of impact to the family and and to the community. Sure. But if we have enough projects go unprofitable, and a consulting engineering firm, let's say, goes out of business that was supporting 400 families, what's the impact there? So in terms of intensity and impact, sure, 
within a few hours, there could be a terrible tragedy. We don't do a good job communicating and negotiating as a hostage negotiation team. But as a culture, if your firm doesn't set up systems and processes and support the development of skills within your culture that create satisfaction for your clients and then produce profitable projects over the course of months and years, I would argue that's more impact to the community and to the individuals involved when we have to shut the doors and there's 300 to 400 people looking for work, that's pretty incredible. So at the end of the day, we really can't compare them, but that's what I mean. It's not so obvious that one person dying is the worst thing that could happen. I'm like, it's terrible. It's a tragedy. This is also bad. What's good is what manages both those situations to prevent those, both those tragedies that are immeasurable and different, strong emphasis in culture, emotional communications, negotiation skills, particularly when we're managing the end of the project. I like that example. And I'll give you a couple other examples that I think are really meaningful is if a company's working on a bridge project and it's X amount of dollars and they end up doing a lot of extra work, but they're not able to negotiate to get extra dollars, they might just end up cutting corners and maybe not even intentionally just because they're not getting paid what they feel they should. And now you have a potential safety issue on a structure that's carrying thousands of people back and forth to work every day, right? So that's another potential danger of engineer or consultant not being able to negotiate and get what they need to get or what they should get. That's a problem. And I'll tell you even another very basic example that I saw in my own personal life is I used to bring my car to this mechanic who was probably the best mechanic that I ever went to, but he would just charge you like nothing. And I kept saying to myself, like something is off here because He's doing great work, but his business is not going to survive if he's charging these kind of prices. I mean, I felt, I mean, I literally wanted to pay the guy more because right? I felt like I was killing, but even if I did pay him more, but he continued to charge everybody else less, it wasn't going to help him. And sure enough, guy went out of business and, you know, my wife and I loved bringing our cars to him. He always explained everything to you. It was just a great mechanic and he ended up having to go and work for someone else. So I definitely think that there is a lot of value to the culture, to the community around you by being able to get the fee that you deserve, quite frankly. But I just think the mechanics of doing it are not that easy, which is what we're going to talk about today and get into some of that. So let's bring it back to the realm of engineering project management. How can engineers kind of strategically incorporate the element of time to enhance their negotiation position as we get into some tactics here? Time is a tool that will be used by less than scrupulous negotiators. I think that's the first thing is what I teach I would suspect, by the way, Anthony, with, with all the work you all do with project managers, if we examined it, it would be proper to, to describe like what you guys do in this realm also, which is called relationship-based negotiations. Because the work that consulting engineering firms do, it's all team-based, it's all people-based. So the technical aspect is what it is, but we're delivering projects in teams, we're pursuing work in teams, oftentimes joint venture partnerships outside of our firm in a team. It's not like when we deliver widgets from a factory, when the client picks us, now we're on a team to deliver that project for them because they have to make decisions. They have to provide resources and time, dedicate that to this project for it to be successful. Then we thrust the PM in. That's the best part. It's like, all right, we created this very complex environment of a, like a teaming atmosphere where we have to deliver this insanely valuable and expensive project. And then we're going to take an engineer because that's how we do it. Who's extremely gifted from a technical sense as an engineer, but now they're managing all of these things we've just described are not technical. They're adaptive. It's people work. And hopefully we've equipped them with some adaptive people skills, but probably we haven't. They've just risen to that. Like they've just accumulated that along the way, we hope. So then what happens is they're going to manage that project from the pursuit all the way through 
final delivery and then any other like contractor work we have on site after that, right? They've got to manage that whole adaptive process alongside of all the technical work of actually designing stuff and potentially building it. So in all of that, right, it's relationships. So we have to have a system. That's what I would advocate for because that's what engineers love anyhow. Like there's reasons for that because it keeps us safe. It's effective. It's adaptive, which is what we need for people, but also it allows incremental improvement over time. So, but a relationship-based negotiation system, as opposed to like people might ask, well, what's the alternative? Leverage, power, authority, which in a manufacturing environment tends to be much more in play. When we're just talking about volume-based production, when it's commoditized, right? Professional design services, it's a relationship-based environment. We should have a relationship-based negotiation system. So that's where it's at. You're exactly right. And we talk about this all the time. It's like, you know, you get really good at engineering or architecture and then they make you a project manager, but I'm good at engineering. I'm not good at project management, right? And so the next step would obviously be to upskill them on their project management skills, which some firms do, but some firms don't, right? And negotiation is just another skill set built in there that that's really, really important. And to me, it's one of those skills And I'm not just saying this because this is what Dan does, but I think every firm should have either someone like Dan helping them or have someone in-house. Because if you think about it, if a negotiator can increase one contract by five or 10%, they pay for themselves probably a hundred times over in the course of a year. And Dan said, like, that's just not something that people are are good at doing necessarily or, or used to doing, right? It's not an easy thing to do. They're very difficult conversations. And so- Let's get into some more of the, the tactics now. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see AEC professionals making in their negotiation efforts, Dan? Number one, not managing emotions and bias. That's it. There's probably seven negotiation practices that I would say must be in your system if you want to have a relationship-based system. And one of the most important ones is managing emotions and bias. And this is a kind of a, it's a two-way street. It's you have to be able to regulate your own emotions and control your own biases as you're making strategy and as you're executing that plan in terms of making a strong agreement. And then the second thing is you have to be able to manage the emotions and biases that are going to certainly pop up on the other side with your counterparty. If you can't do those two things, then you're not going to get the most value. One of the, the most important biases is having a strong definition of negotiations that actually is durable and valid and will help you make good decisions. Number one thing I hear from engineering firms, I just did this actually, I just did a cool workshop two days ago. And the first thing I had them do was take sticky notes out, write their definition of negotiation, slap it up on the board, like all together. There were 16 people. I think half of them said win-win or compromise. And what's interesting is that's not a good definition of negotiation as a process. And it'll make you make horrible decisions because it's a bias. It begins to bias you towards certain decisions. Principally is this, engineers tend to be very conscientious and that is really good for customer service and it's really good for making people feel good but it puts us at the mercy of maybe an unscrupulous negotiator like a client who wants to take advantage of us like we're already at a disadvantage if we're conscientious so one thing that we work on is this bias that's called the false attribution bias we tend to think that other people are like us we tend to interpret their intentions as if it was us doing the behavior So for instance, if I was like hesitant to tell you, Anthony, something, you might, if you're conscientious, say, oh, he didn't feel comfortable yet. Whereas the truth might be is they're lying to us. Maybe they're actually nefarious. But if we're nefarious, we think everybody's nefarious. If we're conscientious, we assume everybody else is conscientious. So then you put a conscientious project manager 
in a contentious conversation with a client and they're going to misread the room and miss out on risk. They're going to miss the risk signals. To combat that, we need a system and we need a team concept. When you say like tactics, like most important thing is, I think, having a, a clear mission and purpose for why we're doing this with the client. And right after that is beginning to manage the emotions and bias that begin to, that are natural. They are perfectly natural. If you're not experiencing them, there's something wrong. You should see a doctor. Like you said, these are intense conversations. These are contentious. They're super valuable on the other end of them. Like that's why we do them. Number one thing I see sometimes from project managers is they avoid those. I'm like, nope, you got to have them. It's part of the process. And that's honestly where all the value lies, both for you and also often in terms of for the client. And that's where it starts to look like a win-win. I'm like, at the end, it should be a win-win. At the end of the process, they should get strong value. We should get strong value. That's a strong agreement. It's going to hold up. But in the, the process, it can't be a compromise. And it certainly shouldn't be like full disclosure right away. That's how a lot of engineers do it. I'm like, there's this romance process where we should slowly warm up and, and test whether they're trustworthy. And, and we let them do that to us too, so that they can make great decisions. But uh, in a relationship-based system, you have to allow that to develop naturally. You can accelerate it by cooperating with like the nature of the thing. But what we don't want to do is just, hey, here's everything you need to know. Like, here's our fee. Here's everything. We put ourselves at a disadvantage. You can't make assumptions about the other party. For one, assumption is assuming that they're the same as you, <laughs> which sounds like a lot of AEC professionals might do. To your point, taking a conscientious project manager and dropping them into that contentious situation, to me, almost sounds a little bit like oil and vinegar, right? They don't mix well together. and There'll be problems. Yeah. And you're trusting someone who doesn't have experience in negotiating, who is maybe conscientious and trying to really always looking out for a very service-based approach to their projects, right? To really serve their clients, where they have to go against the grain in that situation and say, ultimately, long-term, I want to serve my clients. But in this specific situation, I do need to think about the interests of our firm and the project and everything else that goes along with it. And I really like what you talked about in terms of creating a really sound framework and process for how to handle a negotiation because we do a lot of project management training and we build programs and we work around the five project management process groups. And having process groups to follow for any project is very helpful, right? You want to initiate the project, plan it, execute it, monitor and control it, and then close it out. And if you have a framework and you create the tools for project managers, they can follow it like time after time and be you're putting them in a position to be relatively successful regardless. I feel like if they have a good framework with some cues and things of that nature that can help them through the negotiation process, it's going to just up their chances of being successful. And as I said earlier, it's one of those things that if you're successful in negotiation, it's got a huge return on investment for any time that you put into building that framework or anything around it. So that's important. Yeah. In a relationship-based system, the outcome should be not just a satisfied client for that project, but it should then immediately springboard into more work whether it's with that client or somebody who can give us qualified referrals. Because ideally, no matter how we pursue work, I mean, the ideal situation is inbound work where a client calls and says, hey, scope this out for us. We want to use you. At the end of the day, that is the healthiest business development culture because we make it easy for engineers to do business development. People love our technical work. It's what we know the best, right? And they're just calling us saying, hey, we want your technical work. Like, let's partner. That almost always happens after some PM did it like yeoman's work did a really great job on a project and they fell in love with our culture. Why? Because there was this cultural representative that just was a rock star. She handed that project over and then was smart enough to say, hey, 
we love this. We'd love to do more work with you. Like this is all negotiation principles. Nurturing is like one of the most important ongoing negotiation activities. Nurturing, being grateful, thanking clients for doing work for us, like getting stuff to us we need, letting them know that they were a great client. Now that creates that satisfaction factor at the end where they're like, we want to do more work with you. We want to send you more work. And they may get another PM on that one. Okay. They've got to pick up that, take that baton and they got to give them that same experience. You've mentioned it several times already, and it's the truth. This is a people industry, the AEC industry. It's all about people. It's all about relationships. So how can AEC professionals kind of use negotiation to actually build stronger relationships with their clients? Because you wouldn't think they could at the surface, but I believe they can. If you use some systems of negotiation, and I wouldn't even call them systems, by the way, there is, get on LinkedIn and just look at hashtag negotiation and look at some of the stuff that's out there. There are people doing different things with negotiation and maybe what they're doing makes sense for that context. But in terms of delivery of professional services, especially design services, like it's a relationship-based system. Okay, so we need to risk, we want the relationship to become the milieu of the strong agreement instead of a tool that somebody uses against us to make us unprofitable. And people will do that. And that is a very common thing with the managers. Hey, look, you guys want us to be satisfied, right? Like we'd love to do more work with you on the road. So you could just do this for us for free or a steep discount. They don't see those words, but the whole conversation is about that. So we want to be able to resist that because that's not a strong agreement. It just leads to resentment for us and eventually for them. So we use the relationship actually as the reason why we won't do that instead of the reason why they might use it as a lever to get us to do stuff. And it really begins with PMs who recognize neediness is like the ultimate bad PM feeling. Like I need them to like me. No, you don't. If they're satisfied at the end with the project, they will like you. More importantly, they'll love the logo on your polo. They want to see it more. But if you're just trying to make friends, you'll often have unprofitable projects and unsatisfied clients. It's kind of weird. It shouldn't be like that. People are weird and that's how it works. We don't want to use leverage, power, and authority. We want to actually emphasize consent. If we want satisfied clients throughout the whole process, right? All the five elements of the project that you guys emphasize in your training, there are opportunities in each of those to emphasize the consent of the client to proceed, to let them feel like they're in control of the whole thing because kind of they're supposed to be. They're turning over the subject matter expertise to us. They've selected us, but that was their decision. And by the way, they can revoke it right under certain circumstances. So we just want to emphasize the fact that they have that right. There would be a situation where I might coach a PM if things go really badly and the client's just very upset, it's to say, hey, you've probably thought about trying to find a, a, a different company to take over this project. And by the way, hardcore like PMs, like the BD people will be like, don't do that. And I'm like, well, hang on. Can they do that? And they're like, well, yeah, under certain circumstances under the contract, yeah, they could. I'm like, that's right. You think they've already thought about it? And they're like, well, maybe, maybe not. It's like, but we're not going to plant that idea. They've either already thought about it or they're never going to do it. But the point of this is that's how you manage that emotion. And you'll see them say, man, we've thought about it, but, and then they tell you why they're not going to do it. Or they'll say, no, that's not even a consideration for us. Can you nurture? Thank you. That's the elephant in the room. We do it more for us than for them. Because now as a PM, you should have no neediness about them firing you. You can focus on your real work, which is where did we go wrong? From your perspective, what should we do to win back your trust? How can we move forward? You can't do that until you've resolved this emotional neediness issue. So those are the kinds of habits that would come out of another one of the negotiation practices, which is emphasizing consent. That's the difference between a relationship-based system versus maybe an authority leverage power kind of system. You would never want to let them think they have decisions and options and choices. 
in that kind of a system. We want to have a strong agreement long-term forever, potentially. And we're going to let them know, hey, you have an option here. What would you like to do? Should we proceed with whatever? And let them be like, yes. Get a lot of those kind of yeses throughout, again, those five elements of that project. And at the end, that's where you get satisfaction. It doesn't come from budget. It doesn't come from schedule. It should. It doesn't. Those are factors. The ultimate factor, though, is did they feel like they were in control of the project from start to finish when things went wrong because they will on multi-million dollar, billion dollar projects? Did they feel communicated with? Did they feel like all the options were presented to them? And did they feel like you all did the technically right stuff when they asked you to? Like, that's satisfaction. That's how you accomplish it, right? That is, I think, at the heart of a relationship-based negotiation system is just letting people know they do have consent. And by the way, so do we. I think that's really important too. It's like, we get to make business decisions too. It's very counterintuitive. Whenever something's counterintuitive and you get it, that means like you're in the minority and you're probably going to do very well in whatever you're trying to do well in. So the idea where you're exposing uncomfortable things, like you mentioned, where you're just saying to them, we know you have the ability to leave this contract if you want to, right? Kind of like you said, puts it out on the table, just airs it out there. And now you can more focus on your job and make sure that they won't leave on their own accord because you're doing everything that they want you to do and you're building that good relationship, which is great. I mean, I think quite frankly, coming from the opposite side of it, the negotiation, if I was the client, I would probably feel really comfortable if my consultant said that to me because then they're kind of not just trying to do it to keep me there. They understand that I can leave at any time. They're doing it more because they want me to be happy with what I'm getting. And here's the added benefit of that is in a relationship-based system. Do you think that your project manager or your consultant has insight into your world, is attuned to like your needs as the client when they say something like that? 100%. It demonstrates it. Instead of me coming and say, look, we know what it feels like. Instead, you come and say, hey, look, you probably thought about like, man, is there a way to fire these chuckleheads and get somebody else? And we know what the most common reaction is, which is funny because it's so tense for the PM, is the client starts laughing. And they're like, look, we joked about it, but no, we know you got, this is just a hiccup. It just puts everything right where it should be. You know exactly what's going on with your client as a PM. The neediness evaporates. It's almost like, you can almost see it like a cartoon, like the neediness. And there's just this levity in the room. And now you can get down to the business of the more technical side of the project management, right? Problem solving. You don't need me for problem solving. You all are out there listening to this, right? You are the best problem solvers in the world, in my opinion. Civil consulting, engineering, project managers can fix anything. As long as the emotions get lined up first, that's it. You got to manage that the lizard brain of your clients and yourself. And once everybody's thinking again, all of a sudden, man, the solutions seem to be so simple. And you're like, why didn't I think of that before? Well, because you were afraid <laughs> and now you're not. It's clear as day what we should do. And everybody in the room's like, it's clear as day what we should do before everybody's like sharpening their knives or there's gonna be a knife fight. So then once the knives get put away, it's like, oh yeah, we should absolutely just extend the terms over the next budget year. And do, you know, you can get really creative and it's cool. There you have it. So you talked about some of the important steps in negotiating, like the nurturing and getting consent, but what are some of the like key skills, like the hard skills that you would say AEC professionals should develop to become more effective negotiators? The most critical is the engine for a relationship-based negotiation system is what I call emotional communications. The way that I do emotional communications, particularly with engineers and particularly with the project managers for the clients I have, is uh, some of the most valuable work I do. It's as simple as this. When I say simple, it's very hard, especially for as a technical practitioner to make this jump. But once they've made the jump, by the way, they don't go back. All of a sudden, everything starts to become really, really clear. Uh, what I tell clients is when they work with me, what am I buying? Because I'm not cheap, right? I'm like, you're buying clarity. I can't do it for you. 
you'll become more confident over time, but that's actually not what I sell. What I sell is clarity. This is what I've found with engineers is once they know what to do, they do it. It's the confusion that uh, prevents us from having these valuable conversations. So where does the clarity come from? Emotional communications in my system, it means interpreting, seeing really the behavior and emotions of others as communication, because it is. If you don't do that, if you don't buy into that emotional communication dynamic, right, then the behavior and the emotions become obstacles to communication. They become very problematic. They're obstacles not just to communication, but to doing anything with them. We throw our hands up. If they would just calm down and tell us what's going on, right? If they would stop doing that and just tell us what's going on, like, no, 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 it's okay. The behavior and those emotions, that's some of the most rich, faithful, and insightful communication they're going to offer you in this problem with the project, right? In this client dissatisfaction moment, when they lose their stuff and like throw their papers, instead of seeing that as an obstacle, you'd be like, okay, they are super frustrated with us. And then you just say that, hey, it looks like you're really frustrated with us. And that's active listening. So emotional communication opens huge, big bay doors into the perspectives and the desires and the concerns of our client. And active listening is how we engage. We walk through the door is things like labeling people's emotions, summarizing their position faithfully, just so they can see that we were listening, paraphrasing the things they're not saying, because that's often the true like desire and motivation for what they're doing. Those habits and skills allow us to have huge insight with that clarity. Negotiation is now possible. I can present to the, I can shape their vision a little bit and show how if we did it our way, they would actually get the real thing they want. They think they want us to do things a certain way. They don't. They actually want the, the product of that. So if we can tie that result, the impact they want to the way that we as the subject matter experts in the craft know would work best, now they'll just say, yeah, do it that way. Instead of doing this weird push me, pull you argument over process. They don't want you to do things a certain way. They do want things to turn out a certain way. Negotiation lets us do that. The engine for it is active listening. The opportunity for that is simply being able to see people's behavior as communication. They're trying to tell me something with their actions. It's super simple. It's hard because most of us don't do that most of the time. Once you break over and cross over, I see with my clients, it's like, there's a whole world out there, Barnaby, right? There's, there's all this communication all around us all the time. I'm like, yeah. And you before it was an obstacle. Now it's an opportunity. And again, counterintuitive, right? Because most technical professionals think of communication as very hard skill, like talking and listening, right? As opposed to deeper than that, like the emotional side of it. So I think that that's something that is very helpful in terms of if you're a PM, you want to think more about what people are feeling when they talk to you, not just about what they're saying to you, which is a whole nother level of communication. Yeah. We spend a lot of energy trying to get around behavior, trying to like get past it to try to communicate. This is a very elegant where you just recognize like, why would I get around it when it's the actual communication? They're telling me exactly how they feel about the project and us telling me exactly what's wrong with their behavior and their emotions. So we've talked a lot about the individual and how they can improve, but let's look at some strategies. What are some strategies that managers at AEC firms can employ to kind of instill a culture of effective negotiation within the entire organization or their projects? This is where things get uncomfortable. Negotiation is just one form of communication. It is a nonviolent form of communication where two or more parties can come to a strong agreement and where everybody's got the power of consent. It is a very particular and very robust specific subset of communication, right? It's one way we communicate. So you go back up the, the chain then. So now we are like, okay, communication. So here's the problem. This is where things get weird and uncomfortable. 
this is great because you're in the space. How many consulting engineering firms, if you walked into their office, like into their waiting room, the most impressive part of the office, right? This is where we wow the potential clients and they've got their core values or their mission statement or their corporate vision on the wall. And it talks about communication. I mean, it should almost everyone. Then let's say the secretary fell asleep. She's usually great. He's usually awesome, but maybe he went to go get coffee for some client, right? Okay. And I'm able to get back there. I broke away as a running back. I'm in the open field. I'm going from cubicle to cubicle. I'm like, and let's say it's ABC engineering because, you know, we all love acronym engineering firms. Okay. That's ABC engineering. I'm like, hey, ABC engineering, you guys value communication and the PM, the random PM that I've stalked and hunted, right? And found is going to be like, yes, you want to be a good communicator, right? Yep. What is the ABC way of communication? If it's that valuable, how have you been trained both culturally, but also like practically to communicate, let's say with clients. And when you do that, you know, you're inside the culture. This is what we're supposed to be doing. You know what they'll do? Supposed to communicate good. We haven't set the expectations for the valuable people in our culture of what it means to communicate in the way of name your company. I work with a company and that was the first thing they said is like, we want to have the ABC way of communicating. We want to communicate to everybody on day one, like onboarding. We want them to have opportunities to grow in that throughout. Like that's going to be our culture and it is paid dividends for them. And I would just recommend that to everybody. It's like, hey, if you haven't clearly defined, it can be so simple. This client, they're like, look, we're going to listen first. We're going to interpret behavior and emotions as communication. We're going to have strong agreements with people where they can, with their consent, basically describing kind of what I teach. They kind of bought into it, right? But what's cool is now everybody in the culture knows. And by the way, people can either sign up for it or not, but they know what it is. It's been cool. But not a lot of companies, we all want good communication. There's a little bit of work involved to define that and then provide the resources to our people where they can begin to execute on that. We want it to be a feature of the culture that people are like, oh yeah, you want to do business with ABC. Why? Because it communicate well. Why? Because I feel listened to. People can just articulate it because they've experienced it. So that's just an example. Like you want to talk about skills that really set people apart. It's taking this, the strategy of that is what allows the skills to flourish. If we never defined what it is that we all do that makes it the way we communicate, then everybody's left to their own skills. So you'll have some people do it well, some people won't. When you set the recipe, like then people can bake the cake. We try to do the same thing with our PM clients where we try to tell them what is ABC's way of project management, right? Like what's your way of project? You could explain it to a client in a couple of words. And and I love that just overall in terms of growing a business. I'm a huge football fan, I'm a Giants fan, and they brought a new regime in a couple of years ago, new coach, new general manager. And the first thing they did was that they kind of set the culture and they used three words. They said, we want our players to be smart, tough, and dependable, period. They put it on the wall and they said, when we draft a new player, we're looking for players that are smart, tough, and dependable. When we do our drills, when we do our flaw, you know, we're looking for smart, tough, and dependable. So if someone goes up to anyone on the team and says, you know, what's the deal here? What's Tell us about this team. Hey, we're smart, tough, and dependable. That's what we do. We focus on that every day, right? So I think things you can do within your organization, whether it's around negotiating, whether it's around project management, whether it's around leadership, whatever the case may be, don't overthink it because I don't like it when you say, hey, we got this great mission statement, but none of your employees can remember it or recite it. I don't understand how that helps them. Think how many thousands of dollars we paid some consultant to help us come up with this strategy. And at the end of it, all the people in the room, which is probably your like principles and up, were like, yes. And that was the end. We do the same thing at, at EMI. Our values are simple. Give, guide, grow. We give our all, we guide each other, we grow together. So we say it at the beginning of every meeting, if we want to bring someone onto the team new, they've got to be willing to give, guide, and grow. If they're not, they're not a good fit for EMI, right? So I think things like that are super, super valuable. So 
For those that are kind of just looking to improve their negotiation skills, what are some last piece of key advice or practice that they can do? Just something that you recommend that they can kind of really walk away from here and start practicing to get better. A couple things. Decide what your definition of negotiation is going to be. I'm proposing to you, it should be relationship-based negotiation. I gave you the definition, which is it's nonviolent communication between people that lets them come to strong agreements where we don't have to compromise our integrity. And it's based upon consent. Everybody's got the power to say no. That's how you get your strong agreements is they said yes when they could have said no. They want it. Secondly, break it down then. So if that's the case, decide for your culture. It's like, okay, what are the most important skills that allow us to do that? Especially PMs, but I would argue also people that lead teams, they need to be good at this. It's certainly valuable for PMs that are externally facing, but think about the value of internally strong agreements where we make agreements about strategy and culture and opportunities and obstacles. Like that's really where the value's at. But then provide support, both in terms of training, but then cultural support. Like identify the people that are really, really good at it. Those are your internal champions. Give them a, a common language to use. Give them that recipe like you guys do, the three things, right? Like the giants do. And then let them lead people with that outside of the technical chains of command. Say, hey, if you really want to work on negotiations, here are people that are really good at negotiations. Call them. They'll help you. Then extend that as far as you can in your culture to expose people to this is how we negotiate agreements internally, externally. This is how we communicate with people internally and externally. People are so valuable. You can't put a price tag on them. And that includes both the talent in our company that can leave. They have the power of consent, whether you want to admit it or not, right? And to our valuable client humans that bring us our revenue and hopefully they bring us other client humans. We value them and therefore we're going to communicate with them well. And we're going to, we want stronger agreements with them where they get to say yes or no. If you do that, you're going to have a long, rich, rewarding career because you're going to have a valuable, deep, rich, and resilient culture. Like your company's not going to go out of business. We're not going to fall into, it's not because we're sharks and we get cut up. It is because we're friendly mechanics and we don't ask for our value. That's when things become unprofitable. So don't do that. Defend your value. Dan, just to wrap up, where can our listeners find you? You can find me at like 11 different ACEC emerging leader programs around the country. And I know you guys do that too. So you can look for EMI in that environment as well, which is awesome. If you want to reach out to me directly, my website is www.masterlistener.com. If you want to know more about what Anthony and I have talked about, reach out. It's free. It can't hurt. LinkedIn is free. It can't hurt. If you want to connect me on LinkedIn, Dan Oblinger, I'd recommend if you haven't looked up with Anthony Fasano yet, you should probably do that too. And then uh, I have a couple books out. I think they're fabulous. I'm also biased, so buyer beware. One's about life or death listening, about the emotional communications that we talked about. One's called 28 Laws of Listening. It allows you to build a habit of listening well. And then the most recent one I co-authored with Alan Zhang, a friend of mine. It's called Negotiation Mythbusters. First myth we bust is why negotiation as a process is not win-win. I think you should read that. It'd be very valuable. So there you have it. Multiple ways. Well, Dan, thank you so much for spending some time with us here in the Engineering Project Management Podcast. We really do appreciate it. Thanks, Anthony. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dan. He is a real interesting guy, and he's got some great tips that we as technical project managers can really use to think deeper about communicating on our projects, to think about the emotional side of it. When you say negotiating, it's not just about, hey, we're negotiating, we're talking about money. 
Sometimes it's about relationship building. And I think Dan really, really captured that in this episode. Please remember, you can find the show notes for this episode at engineeringpmpodcast.com. That's engineeringpm for project management podcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering project management endeavors.